Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 69. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on April 22nd, 2022, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. If you are new to the podcast, you can get a better sense of what we are doing here by listening to the revised introduction for new and long-standing listeners, which you can find by scrolling back a few episodes in your podcast app or on the website. Before getting to the history fun, I have some housekeeping matters. First, there are a couple of items from last week's episode regarding John Philip Sousa's Powhatan's Daughter March. I had said that somebody sent me the idea, but that I had lost the communication so I couldn't give credit where it was due. Well, it turns out that it came by direct message over Twitter from Russ from Chicago. Much appreciated, Russ. Also, various of you have pointed out that I somehow blurted out that Sousa wrote it in 1907 on the 30th anniversary of Jamestown, when it was quite obviously the 300th anniversary. Oral typos happen. Second, I have up and joined the Amazon Associates program. The long and the short of it is that if you buy any of the books I recommend through the links in the show notes on the website, I'll get a teeny weeny commission. More importantly, I'll be able to keep track of the books I sell in case any of the authors want to know. So if you do buy any of the books we talk about, be sure to go to the website. It'd be a great favor to me if you did. And click through one of the Amazon links. And I think it works for anything you buy once you do click through a link. So you can buy multiple books or whatever once you get to Amazon through one of my links. Note that these commissions are not going to change my life but they may pay for podcast hosting expenses that will help me keep my head up high around the house. Regarding the cadence of the podcast, after cranking through episodes on a somewhat irregular schedule, we're officially back to the traditional aim for Thursday or as soon thereafter as feasible schedule. It being Friday morning, I think we're right on target. I have a surge of other obligations coming in late April and May, both chasing the legal tender and a road trip vacation with my wife, so my current plan is to skip May 5th and May 19th, those being Thursdays, unless my muse leads me to scratch up a sidebar, which are faster to write. Regarding the road trip, we're flying to Nashville and then driving the Natchez Trace, doing some side trips, and eventually ending up in New Orleans for the second weekend of Jazz Fest. If you have any suggestions for must-see stops along the way, which could include historical sites, restaurants, or interesting legit dive bars, please send them along. It is late winter, 1616. When last we left our lovers, John and Rebecca Rolfe were in receipt of a request from the Virginia Company to come to London. They had a young son, Thomas, barely a year old. So this must not have been an easy decision to make. The Virginia Company, however, was in the midst of an internal power struggle. It had been led since 1609 by Sir Thomas Smith, no known relation of John, who had not come to Virginia at all. Smith was by 1616 challenged by a group of investors led by Sir Edwin Sands. For those of you following along closely from home or just looking up stuff on the Googles, 
Sands is spelled S-A-N-D-Y-S, but it is pronounced Sands, as in the Sands of Time. Rolf and Sands were political allies in this struggle, and it was useful for Sands, for Rolf, to come to London with his wife and son. Along the way, or perhaps after he got there, Rolf would write a report known as A True Relation of the State of Virginia Left by Sir Thomas Dale Knight in May last, 1616. It was, in effect, a promotional piece for the Virginia Company, and yet, at the same time, invaluable to historians. A surviving copy of The True Relation is one of three known specimens of John Rolf's handwriting, the other two being letters to Edwin Sands. This episode is about that trip to London in 1616 and 1617. Once again, my primary source is Camilla Townsend's book, Pocahontas and the Powhatan Dilemma, a really fine and closely researched retelling of the Pocahontas story, which I do recommend. If you are so inclined, there's a link in the post for this episode on the website. They sailed in April 1616 on Samuel Argyll's frigate Treasurer, the same ship onto which Pocahontas had been lured and kidnapped three years before. In addition to the Rolfs, Powhatan's son-in-law, Udamadamakan, I'm sure I'm going to blow that pronunciation at some point, came along at the Paramount Chief's behest to learn what he could of the English. In addition to Udamadamakan, Pocahontas, and of course, Baby Thomas, who was obviously Indian. There were at least six and probably eight or nine other Indians on board, a mix of nobles and servants, one of whom was to serve as Udamadamakan's interpreter. It's worth a moment to think about how weird this must have been for the Virginia Indians. Udamadamakan was surprised, or in Townsend's words, disoriented, to realize that the ship would not stop at night. He'd never traveled without stopping at night before. He ended up counting each actual day as two days of travel to articulate how long the journey was. It startled him to think that the coast of Virginia and any other coast that he might have heard of was being left far behind. And neither of these strange ideas would come close to the shock of sailing into Plymouth in early June to see the stone and wood buildings, the bustling seaport, and the seemingly vast numbers of people traveling to and fro. How would Udamadamakan report this back to Powhatan? How could he possibly describe it? And they hadn't even gotten to London yet. David Price, whom I've oft quoted, says that the party traveled from Plymouth to London by coach, a trip of perhaps a week. But Professor Townsend says they sailed. I haven't worked out the discrepancy, but let's go with Townsend's version. After waiting for the right wind, the treasurer sailed up the channel to the mouth of the Thames and rolled into London on a flood tide. Now let's go to Townsend's description. Quote, In the port, John Rolfe and his household hired carriages to take them to their hotel. The streets they passed through were home to over 200,000 people, more than almost any other European city held at that time. A century earlier, the Aztec capital had been larger, and infinitely cleaner. But Pocahontas, knowing nothing of the Aztecs, unless she had heard stories from Don Luis, could take no comfort from the comparison. She could never even before have imagined so many people. 
London had not yet passed the threshold to modernity in the way that great cities on the European continent had. There were no wide avenues lined by monumental buildings. Instead, Pocahontas saw a warren of one- and two-story buildings that made mostly of wood, the streets generally of mud. London Bridge was covered with so thick a growth of shops and awnings that looking out of a carriage window, she might not even have realized she was on a bridge. But the lack of marble fountains and splendid views would not have diminished the city's most salient trait, throbbing trade and movement. These ships, cannons, buildings, roads, bridges, horses, vehicles, construction projects, trade goods, and hurrying people were enough. They added up to power. Back to me. The Virginia Company had put the Virginians up at the Bell Savage Inn, a well-known hotel in town just off Fleet Street. It was sort of a happening place. Showmen and theatrical troops would stay there when they passed through town. And since the group was there in essentially a marketing capacity, it all made sense. Sounds like it was a great place for a selfie had they had that capacity back then. News of Pocahontas' arrival spread through town quickly. Her name is mentioned in surviving diaries and letters all over London within days of the news of her landing at Plymouth. The English believed that she was an Indian princess, so she had to look the part. Sir Edwin Sands arranged for the company to pay her a weekly stipend of four pounds for clothing befitting her status and for the food and lodging of the other Indians. By comparison, a sailor or a common laborer might earn 15 or 20 pounds per year to support a family of several people. So four pounds a week, while not enough to live in great luxury, would have been more than enough to get some decent clothes and feed the visiting Indians. And what were those decent clothes like? For Rebecca Rolfe, they would have gone much beyond the English clothes she might have worn back home on the banks of the James. There would have been canvas linings to hold out her skirts, big sleeves that would have made it impossible to do anything useful, and a board bound to her torso below her breasts to achieve the fashionable shape. The Virginia Company worked its promotional magic, and the invitations from the flower and chivalry of London came pouring in. Udamatamakan and his translator ran point on explaining the Powhatan Confederacy and its religion and custom to interested English. And the decidedly handsome Pocahontas was all the social buzz. She acquitted herself well, at least as far as these 17th century English were concerned. Samuel Purchase, a minister, scholar, and New World enthusiast who had made it his business to pick up where Richard Hacklight, you guys remember him, I'm quite sure, had left off, wrote of Pocahontas, quote, She did not only accustom herself to civility, but still carried herself as the daughter of a king, and was accordingly respected, not only by the company, but of diverse particular persons of honor, and their hopeful zeal by her to advance Christianity. I was present when my Honorable and Reverend Patron, the Lord Bishop of London, Dr. King, entertained her with festival, state, and pomp, beyond what I have seen in his great hospitalities afforded to other ladies. Festival, state, and pomp, by the way, is an excellent phrase, and I hope we revive it in daily usage. London was alive with excitement. 
accounts survive that describe the impact of meeting and conversing with Pocahontas and the other Virginia Indians. Townsend writes, for example, that one man indicated that the course of his life was changed by meeting with the Virginia Indians and participating in the heady conversation about converting the people of the new world that ensued within his social set. I encourage you to imagine how remarkable this must have been for those involved. The aspiration to convert the Virginia Indians was not some contrived excuse for the early Jamestown project, now almost 10 years along. It was one of the core objectives of the enterprise. Many of we moderns, not all, but many, were reflexively skeptical of religious motives as anything other than cynical. After all, the use of religion to leverage political power has been common in American politics with varying degrees of sincerity. But many of these Londoners were but a generation removed from passionate and even violent religious strife in their own country and on the continent. They believed they were saving Indians by converting them. Yes, there were other motives too. The turning of a mercantile profit was never far from the Virginia Company's thinking either. But the company also carried the hopes and dreams of English people who never sailed the ocean sea and genuinely wanted to save souls on what was for them the other side of the world. Pocahontas, the Indian princess now called Rebecca Rolfe, was apparent proof that after so many lives and so much money had been spent, it might yet be possible. That realization actually had the power to change lives, strange as it may seem to many of us today. The Rolfs were important enough to be received at court and to meet King James I. This would have been a little tricky because James I hated tobacco and the innovations of Pocahontas' husband were flooding England with a weed and filling the coffers of the long-suffering Virginia Company, which James had chartered. This was not actually a small matter. In 1604, King James had taken time to write a polemic titled A Counterblast to Tobacco, in which he condemned the weed in words not exceeded in their eloquence by even the most strident tobacco activists of our time. Quote, Have you not reason then to be ashamed and to forbear this filthy novelty, so basely grounded, so foolishly received, and so grossly mistaken in the right use thereof? In your abuse thereof, sinning against God, harming yourselves both in persons and goods, and raking also thereby the marks and notes of vanity upon you, by the custom thereof making yourselves to be wondered at by all foreign and civil nations, and by all strangers that came among you to be scorned and condemned, a custom loathsome to the eye, hateful to the nose, harmful to the brain, dangerous to the lungs, and in the black, stinking fume thereof, nearest resembling the horrible Stygian smoke of the pit that is bottomless. I shall ignore those words while I puff on my cigar. It is a measure of both the lure of tobacco and the relative freedom of his realm that tobacco only became more popular in Jacobean England, even as the Spanish monopolists kept the price high, as any commercially-minded drug lord would do today. Anyway, 
James giving John Rolfe an audience would not be entirely unlike Wayne Wheeler, the executive director of the Anti-Saloon League during Prohibition times, inviting Jasper Newton, a.k. Jack Daniel, over for a cup of tea. But it happened. Here's how Townsend described it, quote, Pocahontas would have curtsied before the king as she had been taught, then raised her eyes to exchange the necessary pleasantries, at which she apparently excelled. She may also have seen the queen. John Smith later claimed to have written to Queen Anne the moment he heard that Pocahontas had landed in Plymouth. But it is likely that someone more highly placed, like Sir Edwin Sands, actually got the message through to the royal couple, that they should treat the young woman well. Those who had actually been in Virginia knew that Pocahontas's father held real power, and they did not want to risk alienating her in the process of using her to improve the company's prospects. If she should not be well-received, seeing this kingdom may rightly have a kingdom by her means, her present love to us and Christianity might turn to such scorn and fury as to divert all this good to the worst of evil. Besides, if she was well-received by royalty and nobility, it would only add to her fame, and thus enhance the company's future. Nonstop parties in Jacobean London would tire anybody out, and would challenge the well-tempered immune systems of even 21st century Europeans and Americans. Pocahontas, having spent a lot of time with the English as a child and then again in marriage, certainly would have gotten sick and developed some immunity to old-world diseases. But nothing would have prepared her for the microbial onslaught of London in 1616. She began to get weak and sick. Rolfe and the other English attributed her sickness to the filth and smoke and stench of London, and in a certain respect they were right just like other city dwellers fleeing disease before and since. Rolf looked for a place in the country and found a house in Brentford, then as now about nine miles up the Thames from the center of the big city. This was the ancestral seat of the Percy family. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that George Percy had been in Jamestown in its first years and had known Pocahontas when she was a girl. Townsend speculates that it was he who arranged for the lodgings in Brentford. The social obligations would continue, but Pocahontas and toddling Thomas, by now probably babbling both English and Algonquin words without a foreign accent in either, could breathe clean country air strolling garden to lanes instead of packed into the bustling Bell Savage Inn. Of the Indians along, only Pocahontas and Udamatakan are known to us. We actually know a bit more about what Udamatakan was thinking during this trip than we do of Pocahontas, because as Powhatan's emissary, he spent a lot of time talking through his translator with Samuel Purchase and other English who wrote stuff down. Udamatakan was a priest as well as politically connected. He was married to Pocahontas's half-sister, Matachana, and there is a suggestion in the record that he was connected to Opakankanah, who may or may not have been Don Luis. It is therefore a fair bet that Udamatakan had gone to London with as detailed a briefing as it was possible for the Powhatan leadership to give. Here's how Townsend pieces together the available accounts. Quote, 
The man who was an honored priest and advisor to two chiefs back home was not enjoying himself here in London. He told the English that when he had first been chosen to travel to their country, he had gone to pray to speak to his oki, his spirit advisor, if you will, in the temple. He had outlined the trip's agenda and its probable duration, but he said his God had corrected him, warning him that it would probably turn out to be longer than he thought. The God had been right, of course. Ships had already left that Utamatakan had hoped to be on. He lived here with a sense of disappointed frustration, desiring to be gone. Utamatakan irritated Samuel Purchase by refusing to accept the Christian God, expounding on the glories and wisdom of his own gods and correcting English understandings of the latter. That Pocahontas was also busy clarifying English misapprehensions is implied by John Rolfe saying to Samuel Purchase that Alexander Whitaker had been wrong in much of what he said about Powhatan religion in his book, Good News from Virginia. Utamatakan also scored more secular gains. He said scathingly to John Smith and others that their ruler was not a true king, as he had been too mean and stingy to offer Utamatakan a gift to bring home. He had expected something far grander than the white dog that had been sent to Powhatan years ago. Back to me. Now here's a famous story, although I might quibble with Townsend's take. Quote, Those who talked to Utamatakan also claimed that he had been instructed by Powhatan to count the people he saw and keep a record on a notched stick. The story was probably apocryphal. The English were constructing a condescending anecdote out of something that had a grain of truth in it. The Powhatan Indians did keep records on notch sticks, but their previous experiences would have been enough to convince them that you couldn't count ants that way. Powhatan no doubt told Utamatakan to estimate the population. Utamatakan may have well remarked that even making an estimate was going to be impossible. I want Townsend to be right about this for a reason I will explain in a moment. But it seems to me unlikely that the same English who would have known about Powhatan record-keeping methods would then have cooked up the story about the notched stick entirely out of whole cloth just to be condescending. I mean, yes, they were English, but even so. By Townsend's own account, the Indians were at first stunned by what they saw when they reached England. Maybe they expected thousands of people, but not hundreds of thousands. They may not have had any idea how many English there were, especially since in their experience, the English had a tough time feeding themselves. If it were possible using notches to record an estimate of a few thousand people, maybe one notch for every hundred persons spotted or something, it seems quite possible that the Indians in Virginia might have thought it plausible to estimate the English population that way. So the notch stick story, say that three times fast, might have simply reflected Utamatakan's well-documented surprise at the vast English population. Of course, if Opa Kankana were the same person as Don Luis, who had spent years in Spain's big cities, and if he had briefed Utamatakan, the priest would have known very well that there must be uncountable numbers of English. The notched stick story, if true, would therefore be indirect evidence that Opakankana was not Don Luis. Since I love thinking that he was, I hope 
that Townsend is correct, even though I worry that she isn't. I trust you followed all of that. We know less about what Pocahontas really thought during her time in London. There are only two moments that give us a glimpse. The first was the famous portrait of Pocahontas, the only one made of her. In late 1616, the Virginia Company commissioned the 21-year-old Simon Van de Pass, a well-known engraver working in London, to sketch Rebecca's portrait for an engraving that could be used for printing reproductions for marketing. Van de Pass, young as he was, had already become a portraitist of choice for London's elite. He would go on to make engravings not only of the famous John Smith, but King James himself. At this point, it might be useful to pull up a picture of Van de Pass's engraving. You can find it on the post for this episode on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by Googling Van de Pass Pocahontas. If you have ever seen a picture of Pocahontas, you've seen this one. Townsend's analysis of the engraving is very interesting if you like that kind of thing. Quote, Beneath the portrait, the artist wrote in Latin that Pocahontas was 21. In fact, she was almost certainly no more than 19. But the Virginia Company officials would have wanted to hide that, as they needed to present a convert who was a consenting adult in order to make their point effectively. On the one hand, the engraving is full of symbols that are relatively easy to read. The woman who looks out at us from the past is wearing the most beautiful and costly of materials, layers opening to reveal more layers, and a lace ruff of the finest workmanship. Long, delicate fingers hold a fan of ostrich feathers, a symbol of royalty. This is a princess indeed, unobtrusively. Appears a sign that she is from the New World, and specifically Virginia. She wears pearl earrings. Virginia had been seen as a rich source of pearls from the beginning of the colonization project. These, indeed, are one element of the portrait that would have felt like home to Pocahontas. Not everything about the portrait, however, is so predictable. Certain elements reveal distinct decisions that were made by Pocahontas and others involved in arranging for the sitting. She would adopt some elements of royalty, but not its frivolousness. The hat, for example, is in certain ways remarkable. The high capitan, once worn only by men, had recently been adopted by some women. Queen Anne worn one, for example. But such women were subject to criticism for being unfeminine. Later, in fact, after Anne died, James would direct that women be prohibited from wearing men's fashions. Pocahontas apparently had no desire to appear either frail or behind the times, but would wear the hat of a man. I'm going to interject here and say I did find a portrait of a woman wearing a capitan as early as the 1590s, so I wonder whether Professor Townsend isn't exaggerating the recency of this bit of fashion. But back to Townsend. And the head covering says more than this. Noble women usually did not wear hats in their portraits unless they were specifically represented as being outdoors, while middle-class women did. This hat is closer to the kind favored by the bourgeois Puritans than it had to be. Rather than being covered with embroidery or velvet, Pocahontas's hat is decorated only with a relatively simple band and feather. Here sat less a princess than the wife of John Rolfe, the evangelical Protestant. Likewise, many 
Noble women chose to have much of the neck or arms or hair exposed, but Pocahontas did not choose that path. Well aware of what was said about naked savages, she shows nothing but her face. Remarkably, Vandepass represented Pocahontas' features as indigenous. Rather than making her look as European as possible, as painters of later generations would do, the engraver clearly shows her high cheekbones, almond eyes, and black hair. In a most unusual pose for a woman, her large, dark eyes look straight out, observing all the world. Portraits of men in that era often show them doing just that. Women more often tilted their heads down or to the side, subserviently, flirtatiously. Pocahontas showed her straight-backed pride. John Rolfe and Sir Edwin Sands are unlikely to have insisted on this. It would have been Pocahontas who wanted it this way. Lady Rebecca had something to say about the byline as well. Around the portrait are words obviously written by the Latin scholars with whom she kept company. But underneath, in smaller print, the text reads, Matoica, alias Rebecca, daughter to the mighty Prince Powhatan, emperor of, all right, and this is going to be tough, Atanokosamuk, alias Virginia, converted and baptized in the Christian faith and wife to the worthy Mr. John Rolfe. Tenacosamuk was always a struggle to capture an Indian word phonetically, but the word that the English represented elsewhere as Senkokomoko, that is, the Indian's name for their own country, clearly peeps out of the confusion. It would not have been John Rolfe or Sir Edwin who gave the term to Vandepass, but Matoica. The Englishmen probably wouldn't have cared to include it, but if they did, they would have spelled it as the English always did. This rendition was obviously the result of Matoica sounding it out for a Dutchman, just as it was undoubtedly the woman herself who insisted on using the name Matoica rather than her more famous and attention-grabbing nickname, which everybody else was using. She knew Pocahontas was a name for a child. They did not. Back to me. Indeed, when Pocahontas christened Rebecca upon her conversion in Virginia, had revealed on her marriage that her true given name was Matoica, the English at Jamestown had been surprised to learn it. Now the English everywhere would know. The second revealing moment was when John Smith finally came to call in the fall of 1616, according to Townsend, and early 1617, according to Price. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall that when Smith had left Jamestown in October 1609, now seven years before, the settlers had cruelly told Pocahontas, then only 12 or so, that Smith had died. Smith expected Pocahontas to be happy to see him. He was wrong. After a, quote, modest salutation, she turned silent. Rolf, being a reasonably alert husband, read her reaction accurately and took the men present and left her alone. She reappeared a couple of hours later and let Smith have it in his own chastened account, throwing Smith's old words back at him. You did promise Powhatan what was yours should be his, and he the like to you. You called him father, being in his land a stranger, and by the same reason so I must do you. Smith protested that he dare not let her call him father, as she was a king's daughter 
to which Pocahontas responded, You are not afraid to come into my father's country and cause fear in him and all his people but me, and yet fear you here I should call you father. I tell you then I will, and you shall call me child, and so I will be forever and ever your countryman. They did tell us always you were dead, and I knew no other till I came to Plymouth. That Powhatan did command Utamatakan to seek you and know the truth, because your countrymen will lie much. In short, Pocahontas was pissed off in Townsend's reading, quote, her father had established a kin relationship with this man, implying reciprocity and honesty. Smith had defaulted on both counts. He had not prevented the depredations of the English or kept his promises. He had simply slipped away, leaving a lie to explain his absence and his failure to live up to his word. At the same time, Pocahontas reminded him that she herself had honored the claims of reciprocity and honesty and intended to continue doing so. It is hard not to hear the note of judgment and superiority. She embodies her people's virtues while she deprecates not just John Smith, but all the English. Assuming that this account of the conversation is true, it's Smith's own, and it reflects so poorly on him that perversely it's therefore pretty credible, I'm not sure that Lady Rebecca was being entirely honest herself. She says that she only learned that Smith was still alive when she got to Plymouth. But that doesn't quite ring true to me. Smith was famous in the English world and infamous at Jamestown. She had been living among the English there for three years and married to a man who manifestly loved her. I find it very hard to believe that in all the many conversations she must have had over those three years, that at no moment... Did she not hear that Smith yet lived, even if she never asked the question herself? It seems to me far more likely that she did what most people do when they are angry and their feelings are hurt. She marshaled facts in her favor to justify her rage. I've done it, and unless you're a saint, you've done it. Exaggeration in such moments is as old as mankind. Okay, that's not exactly the same thing, but I really like the clip, so there you go. By March 1614, the Rolfs were ready to go home, which for all of them meant Virginia. Sir Edwin Sands met with them on the eve of their departure and gave them a gift from the Virginia Company of a hundred pounds, a considerable sum in those days. When the wind was right, they sailed out the Thames once again under the command of Samuel Argyll. Most of the Indians were ill, suffering from bad colds and probably the flu. Pocahontas had pneumonia. By the time they reached the town of Gravesend near the mouth of the Thames, John told Argyll they needed to stop because Pocahontas was too sick to go on. They went to the inn at Gravesend where Pocahontas was put to bed. Her lungs filled with fluid and she died. We can only imagine her last moments with John. He who had poured out his love for her never shared what passed between them as she died. Thomas was also sick, or seemingly at death's door. 
The moment must have been harrowing for Rolf, who had buried his first child on Bermuda and lost her mother at Jamestown shortly thereafter. But Thomas lived. He would not be listening to this podcast if he hadn't. And John would write that it was proof, after all, that God had good in his heart. The survivors held a small funeral at the church of St. George in Gravesend, reading the liturgy from the Book of Common Prayer. At the grave, which was unmarked, the gathering read lines that, unbeknownst to the English, fairly echoed ideas in pre-conquest Native American poetry and prayer. Man that is born of a woman hath but a short time to live, and is full of misery. He cometh up and is cut down like a flower. He flieth as it were a shadow, and never continueth in one stay. Townsend imagines that the priest, Udamatakan, prayed in his own way, and surely he did. Argyll was concerned with the wind and insisted that they leave. He told Rolf to leave his son in England, that he was not fit for the journey. Rolf couldn't part with Thomas just yet. So they sailed with Udamatakan and the Indians were able to travel. At least one other had died at Gravesend, and three were too sick to go on. Nearly as I can tell, they are all lost to history. Rolf changed his mind as they approached Plymouth, realizing that his desperate need to keep Thomas with him was risking the boy's life. When they stopped for supplies at Plymouth, he spoke with Sir Louis Stuckley, the vice admiral for Devonshire, and arranged to leave Thomas in his care until Rolf's brother Henry could come from London to retrieve him. In the letter he left for Henry, he asked that the child be sent to him when he was older and stronger. John would die of natural causes in Virginia in 1622 and never see his son again. Thomas would come to the land of his birth around 1635, age 20, and inherit his father's lands. He would go on to live a prosperous life in Virginia and eventually marry and father one child, a daughter he named Jane. Jane would marry Robert Bowling, and their son, John Bowling, would have six children, all of whom would live, marry, and have children of their own. By that good fortune, all the people who descend from John and Rebecca Rolfe claim their lineage. Thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, Write us a nice review on Apple and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>